The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, thank you very much for the very kind words. And yes, if you're in the GTA, by all uh, all means, do speak to me about the the school that we're launching. We're trying to get the message out. Uh, We think we have a fantastic school. We have a new principal. So uh, do speak to me afterwards, and I've got lots of stuff for you. But I'm here uh, this afternoon to talk about the uh, really the foremost issue of, of our time in many ways. It's the slavery issue of our day. You've heard some of the statistics already cited here uh, in the tens of millions of unborn uh, murdered uh, ever since abortion became legalized in North America and throughout the Western world. (coughs) And we know very well that the uh, so-called pro-choice movement is very strong and that those that speak on behalf of Uh, the unborn, are in a minority. And I think we need to remember in the context of that uh, the example of William Wilberforce and his fellow abolitionists, uh, as we speak as a minority in our days, uh, the fact of history, which is that uh, history has never been dominated by majorities, but only by dedicated minorities who stand unconditionally on their faith. That is what has always turned the tide of history. We don't need to be in the majority to have an impact on the issue of abortion in our day. We need to stand unconditionally on our faith. That's what we need. So I want to begin with a reflection on the topic of abortion with two two thoughts. First is that the modern practice of abortion, which is made possible only through technological advances, you know, the pill the uh, scoping inside and so forth, all these technological advances, isn't just an act of murder, though it is most decidedly that, and it's upon the most vulnerable uh, to boot. It's not just that. It is the act of a person who acts like an eternal orphan, someone who has uh, firstly received no inheritance, as if they had received no inheritance from the past, and furthermore, has nothing to pass on. And that is in particular in terms of, of life, in terms of procreation. As if they inherited nothing and as if they had nothing to pass, pass on. Those who commit and endorse therapeutic abortion act as if they could cut themselves off from the past and could live in an eternal present without the necessity to be fruitful and multiply in order to live. So life is redefined in terms, uh, in the, uh, rather than the terms according to which God has given them, uh, to bring them under human power and human control through technical means. And of course, it doesn't actually act outside space and time, this new humanity, although it acts as if it were in the eternal present, outside of space and time, as God himself is uh, transcendently. Uh, but the godlike power wielded by people in our day to determine life and death is a heinous act in the present to nullify a past act of conception, removing the future from all possibility. In other words, it begins as a violation of the first commandments to have no other gods besides the Lord, the author of life. We act as gods. 
uh, it's a breach of the fifth commandment, as we've already heard, because it does not honor our father and mother by passing on uh, our father's name, who, which in turn is rooted in, uh, as Ephesians 3.15 puts it, the father from whom every family in heaven on or, and on earth is named. And finally, it also breaches the sixth commandment by committing murder. We heard about this. So it's all of these things, but it is fundamentally a matter of controlling life and more specifically, future life. And of course, it also violates the very first commandment, not of the Ten Commandments, but the first commandment of Scripture itself, which is to be fruitful and multiply. That's the first commandment in all of Scripture, uh, given to the first married couple and thus to all people. Uh, to subdue the earth, fill it, uh, and exercise dominion over it. And so what we see in this new act of the God-man taking control of life is a new dominion of sorts. And I think we can actually uh, see a sense of what the book of Revelation talks about, the great plot lines of scripture, that there are two cities, two kingdoms at war in history, that of the whore of Babylon on the one hand and of the heavenly Jerusalem on the other. This is not something that happens outside of history. It happens within history something that scripture repeatedly refers to. So that's the first point, which clearly has a great deal in it. Um, the second point, and this is as a man, author by the name of Michael Hanby notes, uh, the act of abortion is robbing us of our liberty even to think about the reinvention of the human that's taking place through technology. And I'm quoting him here. He's reflecting on what uh, same-sex marriage is doing to life, but he's clearly talking about the same control of the conditions of life. There it's just related to sexuality and gender. Here it's like itself. Okay, and I quote For beneath the surface of this rising tide of freedom and equality, both of which are mentioned in both debates, lies something very close to the brave new world of Aldous Huxley's dystopian imagination. To appreciate this, we must first understand that the sexual revolution is, at bottom, the technological revolution and its perpetual war against natural limits applied externally to the body and internally to our self-understanding. And just as feminism has as its practical outworking, if not its theoretical core, the technological conquest of the, of the female body... Biology is not destiny, so the saying goes. So too, same-sex marriage has as its condition of possibility the technological mastery of procreation, without which it, it would have remained permanently unimaginable. So artificial insemination, having birth through uh, surrogate means, this is what, uh, on, the only thing that allows same-sex marriage to be imaginable, because otherwise it's a fiction that nobody would venture into. Uh, a man named Richard Stith in an article called, called Her Choice, Her Problem, How Abortion Empowers Men, notes this. It's reflecting back on, on a statement made by President Obama back in <clears throat> 2009, but has been echoed by many others. Uh, Obama uh, proclaimed that, quote, we need fathers to recognize that responsibility doesn't end at conception. And Stith grants the point that he's absolutely right. Responsibility doesn't end at conception. But the problem is that in another sense, he's completely wrong. 
with, reflect, uh, with, with respect to how things operate in the world now. Male responsibility really does end at conception, legally, practically. Uh, men these days can only choose sex, not fatherhood. Uh, mothers alone determine whether children shall be allowed to exist. Legalized abortion was supposed to grant enormous freedom to women, but it has had the perverse result of freeing men and trapping women. Now, the likelihood of this cultural development, I'm quoting Stith here, was foreseen by the radical feminist Catherine McKinnon, one of the critical voices responding to Roe v. Wade, uh, and its extension of the right of privacy to cover abortion. In an essay called Privacy versus Equality, McKinnon argued that, quote, abortions proponents and opponents share a tacit assumption that women do significantly control sex. Feminist investigations suggest otherwise. Sexual intercourse cannot simply be presumed co-equally determined. Indeed, she added, men control sexuality. And uh, again, quote, Roe does not contradict this. She explains, abortion facilitates women's heterosexual availability. In other words, under conditions of gender inequality, abortion does not liberate women. It frees male sexual transgression. The availability of abortion removes the one remaining legitimate, legitimized reason that women have had, have had for refusing sex besides, I've got a headache. Uh, perhaps this is why, she observed, the Playboy Foundation has supported ab abortion rights from day one. From day one. I'll put it this way. Neat summary. Men now control sex. Women now control life. The one loses uh, what the other possesses and vice versa. This separation of sex from life, procreation from life has been separated, allocated to, to the two separate sexes. And this is why, this is the devil's pact that makes it appear to them, and to quote his words, as in Genesis 3, verses 5 and 6, that through this control of either sex or of life, they are acting as gods. And they will not die. For God's means of ordering life to the benefit of them, their forebears, and their future. So the, women, the woman will not be saved through childbearing. Uh, there aren't two ways. It is not, as it says in Genesis uh, 3, verse 15, I will put enmity uh, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. No, on the contrary, love wins. There is no enmity. All life will operate according to the same dictates. All of it. Uh, sex, you will control sex, you will control life. There will be no enmity, it will be all uh, a unified front. I want to go to the Old Testament now on this uh, front, and I think it's absolutely crucial. I note that Joe, uh, Joe did this in his opening address, which I think is fantastic. He quoted Isaiah. I'm going to go to the text of Jeremiah 32, uh, because it seems to me in the, uh, the abortion discussions, uh, Evangelicals have often fallen short, and we, we admit this now, at least many of us do in our day, that it's actually our Roman Catholic uh, brethren that have spoken the most strongly on these issues. Uh, 
uh, appallingly, quite frankly. Uh, and it may well be because uh, of the thing that we've noted here many times, that evangelicals often neglect the Old Testament uh, and also are often caught up in uh, either forms of pietism or perhaps even a dispensationalist theology that is, is more concerned with when the Lord is going to return, which is going to be imminent, rather than living the godly life that God's called us to do. And the Old Testament will not, reading the Old Testament and acquainting ourselves with that landscape won't allow us to do anything but that. Uh, and I'll, I'll quote my, my former pastor's words on this. It takes a whole Bible to preach a whole Christ to make whole Christians whole Bible to preach a whole Christ to make whole Christians. Well, Jeremiah 32 it is among the most affecting uh, passages in all of Scripture. Uh, the gravity of the circumstances contributes to it. Uh, Jeremiah is preaching to uh, Israel about to be uh, taken off into exile, to Babylon. Uh, the curse of uh, Deuteronomy 28.63 is about to be invoked, uh, leading to that precise thing, exile. Yet in response to Jeremiah's prayer, confessing Israel's guilt, the Lord asks a rhetorical question, which offers a glimpse of hope against the backdrop of present darkness. Jeremiah 32, verse 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Well, a catalog of his people's acts of depravity follows this after the question, which suggests reasons why it might be too hard for him. The offense against his holiness is rank. And I'm going to quote uh, Leviticus 18, verses 21 and 22 here. It says explicitly, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of, the, of, of your God. I am the Lord. And goes on to say, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Note the two verses come right back to back, connected with life. <clears throat> so the offense against his holiness is rank, and he concludes a whole litany of reproach with these startling words. I'm going to read from verses 33 here. They have turned their to me their back and not their face. In other words, they haven't repented. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the, of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin." What we can see here is the pattern of a degenerating culture that the Apostle Paul describes, which begins when it exchanges the truth about God for a lie, substitutes uh, faith, idolatry for faithful worship, and culminates in replacing uh, God-ordained marital fidelity with all manner of sexual licentiousness. And it reaches its horrible conclusion in Jeremiah's prophecy. Well, the standard reading of that text, Romans 1, verses 21 to 27, is that unrestrained sexual transgression marks the depth of cultural depravity. And it is undeniably one aspect of it. It's clear in uh, the biblical text, whether in Jeremiah or in Romans. 
And the high places in Jeremiah 32 were directly related to the worship of Baal and his wife Asherah through the cultic prostitution of both men and women. Yet Asherah was also the female consort of Moloch. And it is her alliance with him in that alliance that we see the final element of the cultural decline that illuminates Paul's text. Sexual licentiousness coalesces with something the Lord describes to be so shocking that it hasn't even entered his mind to cause Judah to sin. The practice of sacrificing their own children. They became inventors of evil. Turning one's back on the Lord of life ultimately entails embracing the culture of death and the fire of hell. Now let me say just um, for everyone's sake here, I assume we're not all experts in Near Eastern uh, religions and so forth, a few words about the specifics of Moloch worship. Because this is going to be very important uh, to what I'm going to want to say about the contemporary abortion landscape. Very important. Moloch worship was deemed unimaginable for a reason. Uh, The giant brass uh, statue of the god with his hands out in front of him, uh, cast in a human shape with a bull's head, outstretched hands, a fire was kindled in his belly, which heated the whole statue to be scalding hot. Terrific heat. To appease the wrath of, of Moloch, parents were required to offer up their babies on his hands uh, to, uh, and to gaze upon what happened to the baby without, and this is key, without tears and without signs of protest. Uh, this rejection of any signs of protest was essential. There can be no protest in Moloch worship. You have to offer it freely. You have to choose it. You must look upon it silently. You must not speak. You must not protest. You have to offer it as a love offering. Only that will convince the angry demon God that sacrificing their baby is an act of the parent's own volition. That makes it an acceptable sacrifice. And ever accommodating to his worshippers, he's the first humanitarian, Moloch's votaries would play their drums and flutes really loudly to drown out the tortured cries of the babies, helping the parents to look upon it without breaking down. This seems to me to have an immediate contemporary relevance. In the Moloch worship of our day, those who won't allow pro-life groups uh, to speak or to protest are acting in accordance with the dictates of Moloch worship, which will not allow protest, which must be silently acceded to, consented to, agreed to, condoned, accepted, rejoiced in. It's a right, a human right for the human good. Now, this terrible action also had a deeper theological significance. Now, here we're going to have to come to the teaching of the Lord Jesus because what transpired in the Valley of Hinnom, which seems a little obscure to us as a reference, I I suspect, was not simply a moment of utmost darkness in Israel's ancient history. It was an earthly type of an eternal danger. Jesus regularly warned that mankind tended towards Moloch worship when it did not worship him. He used the word Gehenna, which is the word for hell, uh, 11 times in the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus speaks of hell more than any other writer. 
for those who want to avoid the word hell. Jesus talks about hell all the time. Describing a pattern of life opposed to that of his kingdom. Now, liberal theologians will say, because the Valley of Hinnom refers to a place where the people of Jerusalem burnt their garbage, that it doesn't refer to a literal hell. This is as, as usually idiotic as liberal theologians are upon this point. Of course it refers to a hell. There's an earthly type to an eternal hell. Uh, but there's no doubt that it has a geographical reference and a particular one where, yes, Jerusalem's garbage is burnt, but where also child sacrifices are made, where the babies are burnt. R- literally a holocaust. They're all burnt up. And Jesus clarified what was implicit in the judgment of Israel in Jeremiah 32. The acts associated with that place had an eternal spiritual significance. The Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, in Jesus' teaching was a place where body and soul can be destroyed. Matthew 10, 28, in unquenchable fire, Mark 9, 43. So the connection of hell with the practice, first of all, with rampant sexual license, Baal worship, and willful sacrifice of infants cannot be ignored. It represents a spiritual depravity of the first order. Russell Moore puts it bluntly when he states that a culture of death that denies personhood to the unborn is a culture that is assaulting the very image of Christ himself. Now, Moloch worship, as I've described, is, of course, just the most lurid of the atrocities of the ancient world towards the very young. Joe averred to a few of them earlier on. Um, And its only comparison in Scripture is in two other instances, it seems to me, where a god king, a king acting as if he were a god, sought a wholesale massacre of the innocents. They're both actually, uh, in that sense, also instructive. In the first instance, you'll probably know them both. Uh, immediately. In the book of Exodus, it was proposed as a means of population control because there were too many Hebrew slaves. We're going to have to kill them all. A king, Pharaoh, speaking as God, is going to slaughter the innocents. And secondly, in Herod's purge of the boys of Bethlehem, it was to prevent the emergence of a rival king. In both instances, the Lord appears as a savior. He's going to deliver the people of Israel from bondage of, of, of Egypt. And that bondage includes the sexual licentiousness and the murder, whole-scale murder. Uh, and in the second case, clearly it, it refers to Jesus Christ himself as Savior. And the one is a type of the other. The one foreshadows the other. Yet aside from the gruesome rites, Moloch worship and the Moloch cult's practice of infanticide was common. It's known throughout the world. It always has been. Uh, Throughout the ancient world, where fertility rights and cultic prostitution were rampant, the return of prostitution as a legalized thing is a return of paganism. In the same way that abortion is a return of paganism. These are just the signs of the very same thing. There's nothing new under the sun. Just as in the ancient world, uh, where unwanted children were regularly left exposed to the elements, we see the same thing happening in our day, except it's not outside. In ancient Rome, just for example, a, parent ha- a father had absolute and despotic power over his family, including the power and, of death and life over his wife, his concubines, his children, and his slaves. When I say absolute, he could kill them 
by his command. They had no law over him. Uh, They were, from a legal perspective, his property. They were like things, not persons. Now, what happened to them was the father's choice alone. It was his choice. It was the father's right to choose. And the state supported him in that. It, It reinforced this right. It was terrible. The ancient world, a terrible practice. You've heard Joe talk about what Christians did in response to that. But for all of its savagery, what the ancient world might have permitted fathers to, well, it might have permitted fathers to do, namely to dispose of the children they didn't want. Uh, Even the ancient world would never have classified abortion as a human right. That phrase is so telling as in some sense a defining human good. This is what it means to be human. If you deny us abortion rights, you deny us a human right, a core human right. By identifying abortion as a human right, and thus as an absolute, one of the most pernicious aspects of the contemporary practice of abortion in the West has developed. Abortion has been identified as a matter of women's health and personal well-being. So in the U.S., uh, the publications of the the National Organization for Women, the NOW, repeatedly refer to abortion as the most fundamental right of women, ahead of the right to vote and the right to free speech. All the things that feminists once worked for, the most fundamental right is that of abortion. The protection of abortion rights is its top Priority. You can look on its own website. What I'm saying is not controversial in that sense. It's absolutely clear. Now, this uncompromising devotion to the abortionist cause marks out those that support it as a religious group, a sort of a cult. What sort of cult might it be? Well, G.K. Beale in his book, uh, We Become What We Worship, Uh, a biblical theology of idolatry suggests based on Isaiah 6 that whatever people revere, they resemble uh, either for their ruin or for their restoration. And uh, I note that at the outset, Randy quoted Proverbs 8.36, which is the voice of wisdom. And and I don't mean Randy here. I mean the Lord's voice of wisdom, although he is a wise man, uh, which states that he who sins against me wrongs his own soul All those who hate me love death. Love death. Not just that that it's a consequence. This is their love. And in the case of Moloch worship, the civilizations that worshipped that fearsome idol were horrifically savage and they gave their children over to death out of an act of worship, a love offering. It's entirely correct to say that there's nothing resembling brass idols in our midst. That's true. But there is more to it than that. Because whatever people revere is whatever they hold to be the ultimate reality. Whether it's the triune personal God of scripture or something else. What is the ultimate reality in Canada that people will adhere to? What is it the ultimate reality that we in this room adhere to? What is it that evangelicals adhere to as the ultimate reality? I think we're going to say that uh, it is the triune God. It is love divine. All love's excelling. He who made us in his image, uh, male and female, made us to love him and worship him forever. But that's not the dominant perspective. That's not the cultural uh, norm of our day. 
the dominant perspective in Canada, and I say, and throughout the Western world, is that that afforded by modern science, which methodologically excludes uh, revelation, that what God says about himself is true. It methodologically excludes it from consideration. And instead of that, it offers a cosmological explanation, but it's a materialist one. The pr- and, and, and this is totally contradictory to provide a cosmological explanation of a materialist nature. It's not possible. But let me give you an illustration of how it happens. Uh, The prevailing cosmological view of our day, at least one of them, is the explanation for the very existence of life in the universe. It's called the Big Bang Theory. Whereby everything spontaneously emerged from a hydrogen uh, explosion it further resulted in the enormous complexity and diversity and the interrelatedness of everything that exists. Now, if we were to describe the assumptions that have been made in this theory, which I'm going to do right now, we would have to admit that it presumes that something can spontaneously come from nothing. And that anything, therefore, can basically become anything else. Right? Something can come from nothing, and anything can basically become anything else. Because if nothing can become something, then something that is can become something else. So I, as a man, can become a woman. I can call myself a woman. We'll accept that. It doesn't matter if we want to add the biological theory of evolution to this, because the, the idea is basically the same, which is why the two theories happily coexist. There is no conflict there. And what we are really providing there is an intellectual template for the absolute freedom of the will. Freedom of the will to declare that anything can become anything else. Now, in the sexual realm, I say this simply because not this is the focus of this talk, but because it's so much in the culture wars right now, uh, is is what we call we might call homosexuality, postmodern sexuality. It's like magic. You know, a man can become a woman. Uh, we can, and we have to accept that. Uh, gay marriage is an, a cardinal illustration of worshiping absolute free choice, irrespective of what you see or the consequences. It, it is so. By fiat, I declare it so. It is marriage. The autonomy of choice is revealed in declaring that something that hadn't exist and cannot exist now does. The worship is clear in the demand that is publicly celebrated and legally recognized. On the other hand, reducing the institution of marriage to a verbal definition, a mere verbal definition, and then excluding the procreation of children from that definition is a reduction of a something to a nothing. So you make a nothing into a something and a something into a nothing. Passing legislation, therefore, to include variations on this definition, which is really just whatever I say, it is so, um, to make it more inclusive, as with same-sex marriage, it can make it official, but it doesn't make it real, it doesn't make it socially uh, effective. Without children, they cannot perpetuate themselves. And we can similarly talk as if gender exists uh, in contradistinction to biological sex, And we can manufacture new genders to identify new trains of thoughts, but they are no more than, and this is the point, they are no more than willful expressions which officialdom can only will 
that the general population will because they will it to be so. It is so because I say it so, and that's the point. You have to will it because I say it so. It's a pure act of will. The fact that it contradicts common sense even and what you see with your eyes, that is the point. It's not beside the point. That is the point. It's totally arbitrary. It reveals that it's a pure act of will. It's adherence to the will of the state that wants you to worship the will. So, uh, and uh, of course, Facebook now allows for 51 such genders. Bigots. They oppose the 52nd gender. It's outrageous. How dare they? Reduce it to only 51. I mean, uh, Thomson Reuters last October, 60,000 wrongs media empire, uh, only mentioned nine genders. Clearly, they were behind the times. Now it's 51. Next year, doubtless, it'll be far more. It's infinite. The point is that it's absurd. And that is the point. It is absurd. It's, a, it's meant to be willfulness. You're to will and consent to the willfulness which will deny the reality you see in front of your face. Never mind the revelation of God. You're to deny the very thing you see with your own eyes. In short, the ultimate reality of our day is not the triune God. It's the very comfortable, infinitely plastic form of nihilism, of nothing, the worship of nothing, of death, of extinction which however well established uh, thereby reveals that it's a worship of nothing but our right to choose. It reveals our will. Our society worships death because it reveals its choice to be its own God. Now David Hart, an Orthodox theologian actually, in a little article called Christ and Nothing and First Things, great article I must say, explains that our society's chief moral value as the absolute freedom of choice, he explains it with this analysis, and I quote here, a society that believes this must at least implicitly embrace and subtly advocate a very peculiar uh, moral metaphysics. The unreality of any value higher than choice or of any transcendent good ordering desire towards a higher end. Desire is free to propose, seize, accept, or reject, want or not want, but not to obey. It's not free to obey. It can choose, it can seize, it can accept, it can reject, it can want, it can not want, but it cannot obey. Society must be secured against the intrusions of the good or of God so that its citizens may determine their own lives by the choices they make from a universe of morally indifferent but variably desirable ends unencumbered by any prior grammar of obligation or value. That includes personhood. Don't call me he, call me she. In fact, call me they. It was in the Toronto Star last year. Personhood itself. What does that reveal? The absolute arbitrariness of my choice, which you must assent to, not because of, for any reason other than it reveals a choice, and that's what we worship. But of course, uh, this If the will determines itself only in and through such choices, free from any prevenient natural order, then it too is itself nothing. So it's literally the worship of death, which is the extinction of life and everything. We worship nothing. It is in the very terms of the woman's right to choose 
that we find the appeal to a God concept. As with Moloch worship, the voluntary nature of the sacrifice is all important. The hospitals and the abortion clinics and the limitations on public protest provide a cost-free and civilized variation on the drum beats of Moloch worship to shield mothers from comprehending the consequences of their actions and possibly shedding a tear and showing that they don't really will it. We want them to will it, to not think about it. But make no mistake, absolute choice without protest is the aim. No protest. It cannot just happen. It has to have no protest because it it is a declaration of the pure expression of the will. That's what it's all about. So Moloch worshippers need to show him their unconditional love. And they can't have anyone else intrude upon that. Hence, no protest, no choice chains, no protests outside abortion clinics, no distribution of pamphlets, no emotional manipulation that actually shows the consequences of this that might horrify them into an emotional response. No, it's a pure clinical act. That's not a person. That's not murder. That's not a death. You're not bearing the psychological consequences of this for life. It was a choice. It's free choice. I endorse you in that, sister. i conclude with this thought. Um, the abortion of fatherhood that results from this. It's her choice. It's her problem. Now, one of the preeminent social legacies of Christendom, Joe talked about this uh, earlier on, was the eradication both uh, practically, legally, and politically of the idea that women were the property of their husbands and could be done with what they will. And furthermore, that their children could be murdered at their choice. The Bible insisted on the covenant obligations of man to wife and both to child as the basis of the social good. This was entrenched in the family as the cornerstone of all social order. The Enlightenment's postulates of human autonomy and freedom rather than personhood and the family as the fundamental human categories seriously eroded that and brought about a backlash in the 20th century, the feminist movement. It largely encouraged women to understand themselves not in a, as women but in similarly mistaken autonomous terms. They want equal rights to be just as autonomous and without consequences as the men were. Demanding equal rights in, every vari- in a variety of areas where men's obligations had been previously understood. But the right to choose to abort a child and the perceived need for it actually validates the old patriarchal worldview. Which holds that women, uh, unencumbered, or sorry, encumbered as they are by their reproductive capacity, are inferior to men. Because pregnancy requires them to depend upon men. Women are inferior if they're pregnant because they're, by condition of being pregnant, dependent upon the men. So the feminist movement opposes this dependency because it opposes equality. Now, the sexual revolution simply makes this a crisis because now we have uh, pregnancies taking place outside of marriage with a dependency on someone who's going to abuse you. So it it gives fuel to the fire Uh, That equality is really the solution to the problem when it's actually a mistake, mistaken identification of the problem, and then it enhances the problem. So, and this is uh, 
In conclusion, a few pages. <laughs> Having explored the connections of the sexual revolution, rampant promiscuity, uh, with abortion and observed it as a social symptom of extreme peril, particularly theological peril, and the clear manifestation of the reign of Babylon the Great on earth that comes about through it, referred to in, in uh, Jeremiah, referred to by, by Christ himself in referring to uh, Gehenna, uh, referred to in the book of Revelation, where it also talks about the same process going Forward. I conclude by observing that its devastating effect comprehends the entire family, but particularly on the women. It allegedly liberates and heals. Now, this is a place where I think uh, Christians need to push in the abortion debate. The effect, the terrible effect of abortion, particularly on women. It's not, a, it's not violating women's rights to push on this. Don't listen to the tongue of Mordor. This is the tongue of Babylon the Great. That Don't be confused by this dialogue. It, it particularly damages women. Uh, throughout the Western world, abortion is held to be the most fundamental human right. We know this. It's the fundamental women's right. Canada sees itself in the forefront of women's rights precisely because it provides unlimited, fully funded access to abortion on demand. We stand for the woman's right to choose. But nowhere is it more obvious than su that supporting abortion is different than standing for women's rights than in the widespread practice, which has now reached the public ears, of gender side, the killing, the targeted killing of young girls. Why? Because they're girls. The hypocrisy of those who have called themselves defenders of women's rights has been well and truly exposed on this issue. They might sound the whistle of a dog whistle of oppression to their hearers and an imposing patriarchy. We can't have a, a, a law on this. It would be against women's rights while they're still murdering girls and they admit it and they can't deny it. The statistics bear it out. Uh, but now the feminists stand shoulder to shoulder with patriarchal societies, the very ones that are particularly aborting the girls. So the point of principle is clearly about defending the pro-choice position rather than defending women's rights. Unfettered access to death as a choice is sacrosanct. Because really, it is, the, it is the expression of the power to control life, going back to my introductory point, to determine good and evil as gods. That's what we worship when we worship choice. We worship the power to control life, to be the authors of good and evil as gods. Yet even if we disregard the practice of gender side, we still find that 40 years on, Abortion on demand has failed to liberate the overwhelming majority of women or promote their good. Joe cited some statistics. Uh, instead, it has promoted the terms of the sexual revolution. Uncommitted, anonymous sex without consequences for men. To the detriment of women, giving pregnant women the sole prerogative of choice. As if it were a great reward for women is just the final insult. For this so-called right has really just exempted men from any responsibility for their sexual promiscuity, their irresponsibility. It's the free pass. Covenant fidelity has been done away with. All 
uh, trust, all bond of social necessity between people has been eradicated. The sperm donor and the drunken sailor have exactly the same status as the good father, namely none. He has no rights because it's the woman's absolute right. In short, the woman's power to choose not only results in the slaughter of millions, it has made for the unprecedented cultural phenomenon of single mothers and fatherless children a statistic that also rises by the year. And not only has it given men a free pass, it has increased the stigma on women for carrying or aborting the child precisely because her choice means it's all on her shoulders. If it's her choice alone, it's her responsibility alone. That's the consequence of this. And once the women leave the silencing cordon of confidentiality and maternal health care of Moloch's functionaries in the clinic and in the hospital, you know, the pregnancy care centers, which are not pregnancy care centers unless they are actually a pregnancy care center and not a murdering place, um, they, they alone will have to hear either the baby's cries on their own or their peers' attacks on their irresponsibility for bringing a so-called unwanted child in the world. Note the term, unwanted. It wasn't willed. Only child that are, children that are willed are real children because they get their whole human existence from the pure act of the will. If you didn't want it, it's not a human. Note how it it now determines the human. It's not only irresponsible men men who will anathematize the pregnant women, their families, their friends will pressure them, knowing that they too will have to bear the consequences of the mother's allegedly autonomous decision uh, because if the mother decides to have the child, who's going to have to look after the child? It was her right alone. It was her right to choose. That means father has no responsibilities. Well, somebody's going to have to support her. Who's it going to be? It's going to be her friends. How irresponsible of you. They're going to, and her family. Often women will talk about being coerced, feeling like they had no choice but to choose. And that was the choice. And society will add to this by citing the cost that they'll have to bear for these Single parent families, that's the cost. More pressure on the women's head. It's all your choice, which means it's all your fault. Well, as the insignia on the breasts of the Order of Canada, uh, the Order of Canada's members declares, there remains a better country for those who live by faith. A better country. Without faith and covenant obedience to the one who is faithful and true, there can be no life. Uh, The fifth commandment declares that it is those who honor their father and mother, which they do by having children and supporting life that shall inherit the land. This is not uh, a spiritual teaching uh, as, as distinguished from an actual natural practical teaching. It is those who honor their father and mother having children passing on their name to future generations that will inherit the land that stand for life. The promotion of abortion as the preeminent human good declares nothing other than the depth of depravity in the world today. Those who hate the Lord love death. It's the calling of the church to speak against this, to protest, to make loud noises 
to call the lost uh, to affirm life as God's gift. Uh, Above all, we should be mindful once more of the text in Jeremiah 32 I mentioned earlier. The Lord asked Jeremiah a rhetorical question in response to the weight of sin and depravity. He said, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Jeremiah 32, 27. The price that the fatherless paid, uh, the faithless paid for their worship of death rather than of him who is the way, the truth, and the life was clear. And it's clear in our day as well. Yet the promise of God to the faithful, which also comes at the end of that passage in Jeremiah, remains in the midst of that. And I'm going to cite that. 32 verses 38 to 41. What does he say? They shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. It's the meek, those who are obedient to the Lord of life, to the command to be fruitful and multiply, to not sacrifice their children to Moloch that shall inherit the earth. And those who hate life are seeing to it very quickly by embracing death, by exterminating themselves. But it must be protested. It must be protested. It cannot simply be that we act this way towards ourselves. We also have to disrupt the worship of Moloch. There is only one God. There is only one Lord of life. Uh, The whole gospel of life must be lived out and declared. Those that bear the name of him who is the resurrection and the life must denounce the death eaters. Then the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. God doesn't have any grandchildren. Are you the children of God? Are you the children of God? That's the question that we have to answer. How do children of the Lord of life behave? That's our question, my charge to you. I'm done. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.